0: So as we briefly discussed last week, verses 20 through 35 in the third chapter of Mark's gospel serve as a bit of a sandwich. What we, what we found there was that word had reached Jesus' family back in Nazareth about all that he had been doing, the authority in his teaching, the power in his healing, and they had determined he was just Crazy so they set out they were going to go and save their son their brother they were going to save him from himself now if this were a movie rather than a true life story what we would have found then is that the that the camera immediately would have switched then to Jerusalem where that very same news was reaching the religious leaders and they too took note of the authority in Jesus teaching and the power in his healing and they too came to a conclusion their conclusion was he's evil He must be destroyed so then we come this week we find that Jesus family has made the 20-mile trek from Nazareth up up into Galilee and they're there they're going to reach out to their brother they're gonna save him for his own sake they're going to save him for the family's namesake they're just going to save this guy because he's crazy. I enjoyed, just as a side note, I enjoyed listening to Alistair Begg's preaching. You know, he's got, that, he's got that great Scottish accent, and he was preaching. He was trying to preach with an American accent when he came to these because he said you can, you can come up with a couple of conclusions about who Jesus is based on what you see. You can determine that either he is mad, he is bad, or he is God. He thinks that's the way we say God. He thinks it rhymes, mad, bad, God. So go ahead and stand to your feet. I hope by now you've found chapter 3 in Mark. Stand to your feet, and we're going to continue reading together. We we'll begin in verse 31, Mark chapter 3. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? in it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. And his mother and brothers came to him, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. So Matthew's gospel tells us that Jesus was still there, and he was teaching the crowds. And then Luke tells us that There were so many within the crowd that the brothers and the mother, they just couldn't get to Jesus. And this would immediately remind us of the scene there in Peter's house where Jesus is teaching and the crowd is great. And so the paralyzed man's friends brought him and they wanted to get their friend to Jesus. They knew that there was healing if they could just get him to Jesus. And so they tore the hole in the ceiling and they lowered him down before, before the great healer. And so what we find here is that Jesus' family, they've made this journey and they find Jesus there and they just can't get to him. The crowds are too thick. They can't find their way through to get to their son, to get to their, to get to their brother. Verse 32, and a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside and they're seeking you. So you can picture this, can't you? For nearly the last two years, Jesus has been preaching, he's been teaching, he's been traveling, he's been healing, he's been casting demons out of the oppressed, and the crowds grew and grew and grew to the point that Jesus couldn't even remain in many towns. We would find him time and time again withdrawing from towns and going out by the lake where he could teach with a little more space, going up on the mountain to be alone with his father, routinely having to pull away because the crowds were just so very great. And he was going to attend to them when they came had such a heart of compassion and he knew them and he knew their needs these were sheep and as a shepherd does he's going to care for his sheep but now we find him and he's back in a house perhaps he's back in Peter's house in Capernaum we don't know for sure but he's back in this house and the people are all just seated around him I I love to picture scenes like this what did this look like Jesus sitting there teaching and there's just people around him now at this point we know that he's already called the 12 to him He's already set aside the 12 apostles that he's going to empower with his spirit. They're going to go out and they're going to do the same kind of things. They're going to teach. They're going to preach. They're going to heal. They're going to cast out demons. And so surely they were up towards the front, you would think. They were the the closest. But then there was other people there too. There were true followers, true disciples that were in the group. But then there was others. There was just some looky-loos, right? People are just curious. What's he doing here? Maybe people that wanted something immediate, some healing or some bread or some something. But there was just this mass of people, so much so that his family now, they're stuck. They're stuck on the outside, and they they can't get to him. And getting to Jesus was was proving more difficult by the day, because the crowds just grew, and we see that people were coming from not just there in the area of Galilee, and not even just south in Judea, but they were coming from outside of Israel, from all around. people People had just swarmed to him, and so we see here that Jesus' family, his mother and his brothers, have arrived. Now, you'll notice that... We don't read anything about his father, his earthly father, Joseph. In fact, we don't hear anything about Joseph after Jesus turns the age of 12. So very likely, we can assume that sometime between when Jesus was 12 and this morning's text, Joseph had died. So that the representatives of his family were his mother and his brothers. And here they came. Now, unlike Matthew and Luke's Gospels, Mark has not said anything about Jesus' family up to this point. And in fact, he won't give us their names, he doesn't even mention the name of Mary until we get to Mark 6, when, when Jesus is back in Nazareth and the people are saying this. Is this not the carp excuse me? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, which is Joseph, and Judas, which is Jude, and Simon? So his family is there, his brothers. We know at least that some of his brothers were named Simon and Joseph and Jude. And then his mother Mary is there. And then the people come in and they want to get news to they want to get word to Jesus that his family's here. How does this work? I, I kept having this, this strange this strange picture of you remember when nine eleven happened and, and, and President Bush was there and he was reading um, he, he was reading children's stories, I think, in a school, wasn't he? And then one of his aides or, or somebody came in and taps him on the shoulder and whispers something to him and you saw that look, something has changed. Was it this? Jesus is there and he's preaching, he's teaching, and one of his disciples gets to him and taps him on the shoulder and says, Jesus, your mom's here. Your brother's too. They think you're crazy. Or did somebody stand in the back of the room and just wave their arms and yell at him, Jesus, your mom's here. However it happened, it was clear they had some expectation that Jesus was going to respond. They had a clear expectation that Jesus was going to make a way. He was going to part the crowd and say, make room. These, These people. They have a priority in my life. Or, or, or perhaps that he was going to come out and meet them. There was great expectation, especially in this time, when the call to honor your father and your mother, to, to love your family, wasn't just a social grace. It wasn't just common decency. It was demanded. That is one of the commandments, of course, a fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother. God had great concern for familial relationships, particularly with regards to children and their mother and their father. He spoke about it throughout the Old Testament, all over the law. For the sake of the child, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And then for the sake of the entire community, wasn't just for the sake of that particular family, it was for the sake of the entire community that there was this right relationship between parents and their children. Children, I want you to listen very closely to these words. And I want you to consider living in this time. Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he still will not listen to them. Then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate and the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this our son, he is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst and all Israel shall hear and fear. God had great Concern, because if you cannot respect your mother and your father the very first earthly authorities you will ever meet in this entire world if you cannot respect and honor the authority of your father and your mother what hope do you ever have of honoring any other authority what hope do you have of rightly honoring your heavenly father the ultimate authority that you cannot see with your eyes that is not there to swatch your fanny when you disrespect them God has great concern for this, and this wasn't lost on Jesus. Jesus reiterates that very same command at Matthew 15, 4. God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. He even went so far as to expand upon what it means to honor and to respect your father and your mother. And so, absolutely, we, just as those people that were there in that room, they would rightly expect that Jesus was going to react. They fully expected his mother is here. He's going to jump up and he's going to respond to her. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And he looked about at those who sat around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Ouch. It wasn't what we expected. And and not only would this have come as a shock, shock to the people that were there in that room, those disciples that were there at that time, This response would have come as a shock to people that were reading this gospel in the first century. You remember that Mark's gospel was probably, possibly, the first gospel written. And so it would have been in circulation by the 50s or the 60s. Sometime in there, that's not 1950s and 60s. The year in the 50s or the 60s. And, And by that point, what you know is that Mary was highly honored and respected amongst the church. That James... Jesus' brother had assumed leadership of the church there in Jerusalem, that his brother Jude would go on to write the book that carries his name. And so not only was Jesus showing this unexpected response to his mother and his brothers, these were venerated leaders in the church. This would have simply been too embarrassing a thing to record. Mark wouldn't have said this were it not true and were it not important. This could have been an embarrassing thing to the man that's leading the church in Jerusalem, to James, to say, you know what? I went to go see my brother. I traveled 20 miles to see Jesus. I stood outside. I sent word to him, and he said, who's my brother? Who's my mother? And yet Mark includes this. So clearly there's something to be learned here. Who are my mother and who are my brothers? You can just imagine the shock on people's faces as he, as he points to the people that are around him. And he says, here, here, here's my mother here's my brothers, here's my sisters, these people, these people that don't have a place in the synagogue, these people that aren't called teacher and rabbi, these sinners, these wretched folks that have no place in society, these people, these are my brothers, these are my sisters, this is my my family. You are my family, you people here in this room. It would have been an absolute shock to the system. And we don't know. We don't know whether Jesus ever Went out and met with them that day. It doesn't seem like he did. Doesn't seem as though he left this place and went out and met together with them. It's very likely that they walked away. That they received the news Jesus is not coming out. He said these words, who is my mother, who is my brothers. These, these, this is my family now. And they turned around and headed right back down the road they came. 20 miles back home. We don't know for certain. But we don't see a recorded interaction here between Jesus and his family. In fact, we see very few. We see very few interactions throughout the Gospels between Jesus and his earthly family. We see some interactions with him and his brothers where they make it clear that they don't believe in him. Scripture tells us that. You do know this. Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him until after the resurrection. And again, God did get a hold of him and do a mighty work. But with regards to Jesus' interactions with his mother and his father, there's only three. There's only three times that we see these interactions. The first came when Jesus was 12 years old. When Jesus was 12 years old, and this is a big point in Jewish life. When a boy turns from 12 to 13 years old, that's when he celebrates his bar mitzvah. That's when he becomes a man. That's when he can begin to engage in all the religious practice. This is a big deal when a boy turns from 12 to 13 years old. And so what we see here is that because Jesus was raised in a good God-fearing law-loving respectful Jewish family they would have gone to Jerusalem at the Passover and so Jesus goes along with his family to Jerusalem at the Passover and you remember now Jerusalem would have been packed you are talking about Super Bowl on steroids kinda packed you remember that we we, we think that around the time when Jesus was crucified on that Passover there could have been as many as three million people in this city I've been to that city it ain't big so there would have been a huge crowd there, and what we find is that when Jesus' family turned to go back home, they traveled a full day before somebody realized, Jesus isn't here. We've left him. And so they turn back and go after him, and it takes them three days, three days before they find Jesus there in the temple, and he's there, and he's, he's sitting amongst the leaders as they're teaching, and they're just blown away by his understanding of God's knowledge and his love for the law and just the way that he's engaging his, his, his parents are just frantic, though, so three days. And they get there. Luke 2, 48 through 52 says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You know that feeling. Those of you that are parents, you know the feeling. When you've lost your kid, even for a moment in the mall, in the store, outside, wherever it is, and you search frantically for them. Then when you finally found them, you have this immediate just rush of emotion. It's a strange mix of just unbelievable love and gratitude that your child is standing before you, while at the same time you're strangling them with your hands. Why would you do us like this? You're going to kill us. It's a natural earthly response. Jesus says to them, verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This isn't disrespect. We know that Jesus was without sin. This wasn't being a smart mouth. This wasn't being sinful and back-talking his family. He was saying, guys, this is why I have come. My heavenly father has sent me not to just be a good, sweet little Jewish boy. As much as I honor and I respect you. As much as I honor and respect you as my mother and my father, my heavenly father and his mission, I have come to seek and save the lost. That has priority. My father's mission cannot ever take a back seat. You will always find me busy about my father's business. And that will, for those that are in my circle, that's going to cause discomfort at times. It's going to cause consternation at times. We see another. Response by them as they, 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 they hear these words, their, their response. Verse 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and he came to Nazareth and he was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. She didn't understand. How could she understand? We know the end of the story and we still don't understand. There's no chance that she, there in that moment, looking at her 12-year-old boy, not understanding, listen, I know Gabriel told me who you would be. I know God told me that you had come to save the world. I know that you're here for a mighty reason, but I just can't get it. Of course she couldn't. And yet she stored it up in her heart. She knew that this was something special, and she recognized that this has to have been a turning point. Because this is one of the very few instances, the instance that we see between basically baby Jesus and grown Jesus. This is the one that God has chosen to give us. And so clearly, there was something crucial in this moment. It was a turning point, perhaps. As Jesus is transitioning from boy to man, as his mind goes in a missional direction now, the mission for which God has sent me, it begins now. We see some separation between Jesus and his earthly family coming at this point. The separation is going to grow, and it's going to, we see it here climaxing in this morning's text, that there is going to be some separation as I go out after my father's mission, as I go out and give priority to the reason why he has sent me here. We see the second interaction about 18 years later. It's a long gap. You would think that, and, and by the way, there are, some, there are some false gospels out there. There are some fake gospels going around. They're not new, like not going around like they were just written. There's fake gospels that were written in, in, in some of the early days that try to give us these pictures of who Jesus was as a kid. You've, you've got God's word here. God's revealed to us here what we need to know about Jesus as a child. And so we, we fast forward 18 years later, the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And you'll remember he's in Cana in Galilee, and he's at a wedding. I take great comfort from the fact that Jesus got invited to weddings. People like Jesus. They wanted to have him around. I like to imagine Jesus was a good joke teller. People just enjoyed to have him around. So Jesus is there and he's at a party and they run out of wine. And the family was fixing to be incredibly just embarrassed at the fact that they had run out of wine. They they should have planned better. They should have, they should have thought ahead. And so they his mother finds out there's no wine here. And clearly she had some some relationship. So she comes to Jesus, John 2, 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, in God's perfect timing, he's going to lead us into the Gospel of John, and we're going to really unpack. This is, we can learn much. There, there is much. It's about a whole lot more than just wine, this first miracle that we see Jesus performing. And in God's timing, I, I look forward to the day when we can really dissect the, the significance of these vats of water that were probably used for purification being turned into wine, which would ultimately represent, see I'm already preaching it, the blood of Jesus Christ. But what we see here is a clear expectation on Jesus' mother's part that he's going to respond. Jesus had no money. He wasn't a winemaker. So it's safe to assume that Jesus' mother expected that in some supernatural way he was going to meet this need. Or at very least, what we can see is that this widow Mary was looking to Jesus as the leader of the household. He was one that she knew she could bring problems to. And so she comes to him. In his response, verse four, Jesus said to her, "Woman, what is this to do with me? My hour has not yet come." Another shocking response, "Woman," again, this was not dishonoring. This was not disrespectful. This is not, not sinful. Context is helpful. Children do not refer to your mother as woman, and yet we know that there was no sin, there was no bite, there was no dismissiveness in Jesus. He was again showing some of the distance that was there between him and his mother, and again saying, "Listen." Not only is my mission my priority, but carrying out my mission in in my Father's perfect timing is everything. I will only move in accordance with my Father's movement. When he tells me to go, I go. When he tells me to wait, I wait. I don't move on the whims of man. And he's showing separation here. And then we hear the last recorded words of Mary in Scripture. Did you know this? The last words that we hear Mary say in Scripture, they're here. And they're perfect. Do whatever he tells you. Could we all just get that tattooed somewhere? Do whatever he tells you. She looks at the servants and she says, do whatever he tells you. I like to picture Mary leaving the room and kissing her son on the head. Just, boy, I love you. And then she walks on. And we know, of course, what happened. He took 180 gallons of water and he turned it into wine. The best wine Everybody was blown away. It wasn't just for the sake of the wine. Again, as with all of Jesus' miracles, it was to show even a limited group, even just the limited servants that were there and perhaps his mother, to show to these people the authority that was in his preaching, to, to, to prove to them his identity as the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. So we see here this, just this beautiful picture, but again, he's showing... My father's mission has priority. And it's only in my father's timing that I'm going to act and I'm going to move. And then the last one is at the cross. John 19, 26 through 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciples, who he loved, standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman? (laughs) But this this is different. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Again, he's calling her woman. But there's no way that you could possibly believe that he was dishonoring or disrespecting or sinning against her. In his moment of deepest agony, bearing the weight of the world's sin upon him, not, not to mention the physical agony of dying by crucifixion, as he hangs there on the cross thinking of his mother, he looks to her in just these tender words, to the apostle that he loves, as he says, in essence, John, treat my mother as if she were your own. Mother, you may look to this, my brother, as if he were your son, and he will care for you in that very same way. Again, as badly as Jesus, earthly is a man, looking upon his mother as badly as he must have yearned to stay and care for this widow, his mother. His father's mission had priority, and it was time. Just as it was going to terrify his disciples for him to leave them here to go to the right hand of his father, it was going to be incredibly difficult for his mother, not only to watch the death of her son, but to watch as he ascends to heaven and leaves her here. He's showing great compassion in this. Showing doing great compassion in this as he looks at her and he says, Mother, behold your new family. Much greater than just the boys that you have born through your own womb. Behold your family and behold the way that they're going to care for you now. As if you were their mother. They're going to respect you and honor you and love on you and provide for you. And again, though, it's all about the mission. For what purpose did I come? I came to seek and save the lost. I came to destroy the works of the devil. I came to glorify my father. I came to win back souls. I came to show you that the son of God is here and the kingdom is here. And if you repent and believe in me, you will be saved. That was the mission. He was not going to be distracted. That's the same thing we see here in Capernaum. As he points to all those people sitting around him, he says, here, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my brother and my sister. This is the definition of discipleship, isn't it? To sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and to do whatever it is that God wills. He's painting the picture for us here of discipleship, to be with Jesus and to do God's will. And what is God's ultimate will with regards to man? 2 Peter 3 9 says, He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God's ultimate will for men is restoration, is redemption. Is reconciliation is they look to his son, Jesus Christ, and come to faith and repentance. His ultimate will. So to do the will of God is to come to repentant faith in Jesus Christ and to sit at his feet, to truly follow after him, to cling on his every word and do whatever it is that he calls us to do. That's the desire. And as a result of that, he that is son by nature will become our brother. We will join with him, adopted sons, joint heirs, same heavenly father, same blessings, same privileges, same honor, same glory that comes upon each and every child of God. No, we don't become gods, but we become sons, and so we're showing them here that it's not about bloodlines, it's not about position, it's not about who you know. You know, the scene you, 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 you've seen in, in movies, I, I, I'm not a big, obviously, for a lot of reasons, I'm not a big, I don't go to clubs, I don't go to nightclubs, I don't whatever, but you know the scenes where somebody's trying to get into the club and they're telling the bouncer, my name should be on the list, because I know so and so, I'm third cousin to the guy in the band, kind of thing, he's saying that doesn't work, Then if you want to be children, if you want to be children of God, you want to be brothers with me, this is it, and I can't help but think that this is also some invitation to Mary and to the brothers, and he's saying, look, you have known me as your earthly son, as your earthly brother, We played together in the streets. We swam together in the rivers. You have known me at an earthly level as your brother and as your son. But you need to recognize that at death, that relationship ends. But if you would turn and trust in me, if you would sit at my feet and do what my father wills, that relationship will never end. It will be deeper than you could have ever imagined. You will eternally be my brother, my mother, my sister, He's offering them to transform this relationship. And so I believe that for us this morning, there's a a couple of very specific messages that we can take away from this text. And firstly, is that as much as our earthly relationships mean to us, they can never trump the mission to sit at the feet of Jesus Christ and do what his Father wills. Listen, God places incredible emphasis, responsibility, on our earthly relationships. He cares a great deal about our earthly relationships. He speaks often about friends carrying each other's burdens, about spurring each other on when the way gets tough, pushing each other deeper into the faith, children of course obeying their parents, fathers providing for their families, husbands and wives representing Christ in the church to the world. God cares a great deal about these relationships. It was at the heart of his creation. You remember there in the garden as he says, it is not good that man should be alone. And I can imagine Adam's response, I'm not alone, God, I'm with you. God says, but I'm not man. You need one of your own kind. You need people that are like you and that struggle like you and that know the things, that, the, 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 how hard it is to walk after you, that you need one like you. And so he created there the woman, and, he, and he's given us, right, not just wives, but relationships of all sorts an incredible blessing from God, but at the same time, they cannot take priority. We must recognize at all times and in all ways that our first and ultimate responsibility, our first and ultimate relationship is with God above. Remember that Jesus says this, Matthew 10, 34 through 38, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Duh. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loves his life for my sake will find it. Your enemies will be those of your own house. You see, we should have seen the first ever marital fight right there in the garden. We saw it in the wrong way. Instead of turning and blaming each other, what we should have seen was as Eve was tempted, we should have seen Adam say, no, no. I love you and have a lot of fun hanging out with you. But my ultimate priority is the God and he told us no. And if that means that you don't call me your husband, that means that we don't get to have fun anymore. I'm following after my God. But instead, what happened? They followed along. And they ended up fighting anyways, right? This woman you gave me, she tempted me. She turns and blames the serpent. But our priority has got to be our ultimate relationship. It's got to be with God. But it seems so strange today to hear these words, the idea of enemies within our own households. But dear friends, talk to people that are living in Muslim countries all around this world. Talk to believers in Iraq and Iran. Places where to take believers' baptism is to commit social, if not literal, suicide. Have your family completely reject you and cast you aside. To people that hide that from their families at times for fear of the response and the repercussions and and the hurt. I want you to imagine for a second growing up in a house where to come home and to tell your parents, I have decided to follow Jesus Christ will be to them an attack on who they believe that they are, an attack on who they believe their God to be, deep consequences. And certainly we don't don't see that same kind of black and white thing here. None of you were forced to determine, look, if I follow after Jesus Christ, I can't come to family Thanksgiving anymore, because we live in a place where everybody pretends to be a Christian. Keyword there, pretend. And so we don't know these same kind of black and white things, but what we do know is that if we choose to follow after Jesus Christ, really go after Jesus Christ, follow him with all that he is, whatever he says do, I will do, there's going to be strife within the house. There's going to be strife amongst families. We're going to have to make some very real difficult decisions. Will I cherish my relationships and will I cherish my own life more than I cherish Jesus Christ? And determine that we're going to live with whatever the consequences of that are. And so this morning, I I encourage you to seek that in your own life. To ask, God, where are you pushing me in this way? Because this is is what's at the heart of the first commandment. The first commandment, you'll have no other gods before me. You'll have no other gods before me. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 94, says this. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? And after a long answer, they sum it up at the very end like this. In short, that I give up anything, anything, rather than to go against God's will in any way. Anything that causes you to go against God's will, anything that pulls you away from following after Christ with all that you have, has very real danger of becoming an idol, becoming a God, becoming a false God. And dear friends, there is nothing, there is nothing that tempts your average believer to follow after a false God more than family. The the God of family is great. And the pull is strong. And so before I speak to those of you that are, married with children i want to speak first to the single folks you see marriage is indeed a great gift from god it's an opportunity for us to bind our lives together and again to illustrate to the world the picture of christ and his church that's the beauty of marriage it's a great gift but god has also given some the gift of singleness paul talks about this he urges people in his letter to the corinthians Lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. I pray that each person would lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. Wherever you are, trust that God has you there. And then serve him. But he even goes beyond that. He says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man, he is anxious about the things of the Lord and how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. This doesn't mean that we despise marriage or that we despise singleness. It means wherever God has found you, let us not make idolatry of the other. Trusting that God has you where you are and you are going to serve him now. There will be blessings now. Let us not make an idol out of getting married just because you're single. In addition to that, may not your urge to be married drive you to do things that you know go against God. Certainly at the root of that is guarding our sexual purity. But in addition to that, taking great care with the people that we join our lives together with. Bad company ruins good morals. It's not only biblical, it's practical, and we've seen it. And so to the single among us, I would tell you, you've got no reason courting, dating, hanging out with, in any romantic way, someone that is not a believer, an active follower of Jesus Christ. It will not end well. And I don't tell you this is one that's gotten it right. I don't, tell you one is, I don't tell you this is one that is at all moments followed after God's guidance in this. I, I don't. I'm a man that walked down the broad path, and I've got many scars to show as a result of it. I tell you this is one that desires for you to do better. For my three little girls to walk down the narrow path of blessing. So we begin there. But then, to the married folks, to the parents... Satan loves to use your children as an excuse not to follow after God. What, what damage is this going to do to my kids if we really do this? This is crazy. I'm not going to go radical like this. This is, going to, this is going to destroy my children. Because this is the lie, right? This is the lie of the enemy. To convince us that this false, damning American gospel, that our primary responsibility is to pour everything into our children to do everything we can to make sure that they're successful in school, successful in business, successful in sports, above all else, and that we've let them down somehow if we don't do this. It's a lie straight from the pit of hell. And yet I'll watch as so many believers follow after exactly this, this false empty gospel. What did the catechism say? It said give up anything, give up anything. Rather than to go against God's will in any way. If Jesus Christ would not be distracted from his mission to go outside and say hello to his mother and his brothers, you think he's skipping church to play ball? You can't be divided. Follow after Jesus Christ is going to have great consequences. It may mean your own children hate your guts. It may mean that other parents look at you and say, you think you're better than me? No. No. Matter of fact, it's the opposite. I'm so terrified in my own lacking of ability that I can't afford to take a misstep when I know God has told me this. I've got to walk in lockstep with where God is leading me because I know that to variate, to move to the side in any way is to put my life in great risk and that of my children. If God says go, I go. If God says stay, I stay. Again, I don't tell you this is one that's gotten it right at all moments. Look, when I was a kid, I had three priorities. Sports, girls, figuring out how to make as much money as possible. I don't know where God was on that. And I feel that nagging feeling at all times with regards to my girls. All the time, I feel those words of doubt running through my head. Am I letting them down? Should I have let them? Should I have just let them? It was just one Sunday. It was just one Wednesday night. What are we doing here? They're missing out. They're missing out on all these opportunities. And look, I got to do all those things, and I turned out okay, didn't I? I feel it. I feel the pull in my heart. I'm not telling you that that I stand strong on this. I'm not telling you we always get it right. I'm telling you, each family, you must examine yourself. If you're going to truly follow after Jesus Christ, put all your chips on the table and say, okay, it's all yours, all of it. Every dollar, every minute, every ounce of energy, everything I have, it belongs to you, Jesus Christ. Now you show me how to use it. I will not do a thing. I will give up anything Rather than to go against your will at any one point. And it's not going to be easy. You know what? You know I know it's not going to be easy. Because even as I stand here saying these words, I know that there are people within our faith family right now that just tuned me out and they won't hear another word. To say things like this? You don't get to tell people how to raise their kids. You're right, I don't. I'm nobody. So I'm asking you to examine yourself, to really come before Jesus Christ, and don't hide anything behind your back. That's the way it works, right? You come to Jesus, and you say, all to him I surrender. And he says, what about that? He's going to come after the thing you're trying to hide. You know he will. He's going to come after the thing you're trying to hide, that thing you're trying to hold back, because it's that thing that you're trying to hold and hide back. That's where you're finding your identity, not in him. So I I encourage you as families to have these difficult conversations. I I know that it's not going to be easy. I know that parents aren't always going to agree. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. There's going to be fighting within your family about what it means to follow me. What does it look like to go all in for me? You do remember that Abraham took his son Isaac up on a mountain, willing to take his life. But trusting. Trusting that the God who is above, that the good, good, good Father that has made these promises, that his way is always better. Trusting that his way is always better and that I'm going to make whatever this next difficult decision is, trusting that there is blessing and obedience, always blessing and obedience, even if I can't see it immediately, even if I won't receive it immediately. I beat that dead horse long enough. The second, and I think primary thing that we we recognize here, is this picture. You've heard me reference several times, and, and this, is, this is a running theme all throughout Mark's gospel, but this running theme of insiders and outsiders. We routinely see Jesus confronting those that believed they were the insiders over and over and over again. The Pharisees, the scribes, the religious leaders, the people that believed that they were on the inside. Consistently, he comes against them, and he says, No, you're on the outside. And then coming to those that thought because of their lowly place in life or because of the sins that they had committed or because of whatever they had done, that surely they were forever stuck on the outside. And he says, no, I'll welcome you in. Consistently. Those that presumed upon God and thought they had a place within his kingdom saying, no, no, you're out. You're out. And we see this physically in this morning's text. I mean, how, how do houses work, right? Just think, generally speaking, how do houses work? Your family's inside and the crowd's outside, Right? But we see the opposite of this here. We see the crowd inside and the family stuck on the outside. And he's saying there's no way to become on the inside apart from following after me. Insiders, you're out. Outsiders, you're in. I'm turning the whole world upside down. The things that you would expect, they don't come come to fruition in the kingdom of God. Because sin has so tainted you that you view it all backwards. And I've come to show you something radically different. So he's making clear. That rising to the, to the status of political leader gains you no access to the kingdom of God. Being called scribe or teacher on the streets gains you no access to the kingdom of God. Doing works of self-righteousness, feeding the poor, going to church, praying, reading your Bible, gains you no access to the kingdom of God. That access to the king and the kingdom of God comes through sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ and therein doing the will of the Father trusting in him, repenting, holding nothing back, that is where you become an insider. That is where you find access to the king and the kingdom of God so that he can then look at the sinful and the outcasts and the irreligious and he says, come to me and you will find your place in the kingdom of God. And he could say to the lonely, to the single, to the childless, come to me and you will find a family more grand than anything you could have ever imagined. There's no loneliness in the kingdom of God. You come to me and you'll find brothers and you'll find sisters. You'll find family, instant family. Just as broken as the world's family? Yeah, yeah. But you'll find a bunch of broken folks willing to join their lives together. You'll find family if you come to me. And then he looks at those that would presume upon God, that would presume their place within his kingdom, that would presume they had earned something, that presume that he needed them in his kingdom somehow. He would look to them and he would say, depart from me, you workers of evil. I never knew you. So that's my question this morning. What things have you presumed on to gain access to the kingdom of God? Because you grew up in a Christian household, I love that when people say, "I've always been a I've always been a Christian." My granddad was a preacher. Because you read your Bible, because you pray, because you try not to sin because you're a member of this church or some other if you believe that you have access to the kingdom of of god if you believe that you are an insider for any reason other than sitting at the feet of jesus christ and doing the will of his father beware beware you may be in great danger of getting the end of this life and finding out he never knew you you never knew him you see jesus mother and his brothers at this moment they could have just they could have turned away and hardened their hearts they could have been offended. I bet they were offended. Surely, right? Surely they were offended, and they could have walked away and said, "Who does he think he is?" We knew him before anybody cared anything about Jesus of Nazareth, and now you tell me I got to sit at your feet, do the will of your father, and that's the way I can find a way into your family. We are your family, but we know that's not what happened with them. We know that they were there in that upper. We know that they were there in that upper room. We know they became followers, disciples. They were once outside and now they were inside. They knew Jesus in a whole new way because they saw him through clear eyes. By the work of the Holy Spirit, they saw him and they believed the testimony about him and they received him as king. Can you imagine, when did that shift look like? You're his, you're his younger brother James. You bathed together in the creek, and you ate supper together, and you struggled with math together, and you did all these things. And then one day, finally, the testimony clicks in your head, and you go, my brother is God. But they made the shift. By the work of the Holy Spirit, they made the shift. So you have the same option this morning. You can be offended. That's what the enemy wants. He wants you to take offense at the words of a pastor. I don't know how many times I've sat with people in my office and I've shared the gospel with them and I've watched as they were disgusted and offended. Boy, I knew this scripture when you were in diapers. You know how long I've been teaching Sunday school? You're going to preach the gospel to me? You're going to ask me if I'm following after Jesus Christ? Who do you think you are? Nobody, but I got nothing else. That's all I got for you. And I also know what it means to walk deceived. Guys, I need, you, I need to confess something to you. With every passing day, I'm wondering more and more how much of my walk was just as a deceived, nominal Christian. I'm, I'm starting to, to, it doesn't matter, right? Like I'm saved now. Right, then you, 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 know, you don't have to have that pinpoint. But I just, I'll just tell you, in my own walk, I look backwards and I don't see myself really following after Jesus Christ until about the age 30. You do realize I was preaching in this pulpit before the age of 30, right? It is so easy to be deceived because the enemy wants you to put your guard up and to be offended he doesn't want you to hear the gospel he doesn't want you listen if you are saved and you are his you praise god when people bother to come and ask you if you believe in him to share the gospel with you because you know that's where all the life is found look if if you followed after jesus christ you know you know that's everything That your whole identity is found in him. So if I come up to you and I say, hey, I know you've been teaching Sunday school for 30 years, but let me make sure you're following Jesus. You go, yeah, you know what? Because I know the Sunday school is not it. I know that's a response to my following Jesus. I know that's where he has me in this season. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for loving me enough to ask me. I'm going to follow after Jesus Christ. Dear friends, I've got great fear that what we're going to find in eternity is that hell is filled with people that thought they were on the inside and they got offended every time they had an opportunity to respond to the gospel. They had walked an aisle, they had taken a dunk, they had signed a card, they thought that was it for them. And so as a response to this, every time the preacher preached the gospel, they closed their ears off and said, yeah, you tell those other people. That's for the visitors. Or you got offended when I looked you in the eye and said, guys, are you sure? I'm, I'm telling you. I've, since I've been your pastor in the last two years, I've wrestled with this more times than ever. I sit back in my study and I'm like, okay, God, is, is, is this real? Am I following you? Am I loving you? Am I finding my identity in Jesus Christ? So I'm asking you to do the same because the flip side of that is I cannot wait to get to heaven and to see all the souls that thought they were on the outside. Or even those that thought they were on the inside and then maybe for the first time they heard the gospel with fresh ears and they repented and they turned and they were saved. How many people that thought they were following Jesus for decades and then one day recognized that they were not? They find themselves in heaven and go, do you have any idea how close I was to missing this? I was in the most dangerous place in all the world, sitting in a pew. There's nowhere more dangerous for the deceived. They think they've got a bulletproof jacket on. I'll never forget when my, my grandfather was dying. My grandmother and my grandfather, they each died at, at about 95 years old. And these were faithful believers, guys. Uh, up every morning reading their Bibles together, faithful worshipers. Faith, just, just faith. My grandmother, I remember she, she wondered why she wasn't dead yet. You know how at the end of life some people are just like, come on, God. I'm ready. I'm ready to come home. Um, she led one of her orderlies to the Lord at 95 years old. And she thought, this is why God has left me here. Faithful people. But I'll never forget, my grandfather's on his deathbed. And they had lived together, by the way, for like 70-something years at this point. Like, <laughs> No, longer than that. It doesn't matter. they have been together decades upon decades upon decades following after Christ together. And I'll never forget. I found out that my grandmother called my uncle, who was a Baptist preacher, called my uncle and said, hey, I need you to come share the gospel with Papaw. i got to make sure. He could have been offended. I'm trying to die here. I've just given decades in service to the king. And you're checking my pulse? Yes. So that's my offer to you this morning. Would you check your spiritual pulse? And would you receive the fact that if you're offended by any of what I've just asked you to be a great warning that maybe you're finding your identity somewhere else. That maybe pride has taken root. May we never grow weary of hearing the gospel. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for the promise of eternal life access to the king and to the kingdom and we thank you that it's not something we have to do because we wouldn't be able to do it father we wouldn't we we can't follow the most basic of rules i i can't i I hardly put a seatbelt on and what i'm going to gain access to the kingdom of god i'm going to live a righteous enough life father i praise you that eternal life is found in jesus christ and in him only Father, it is my deepest prayer, my most ultimate desire that you would draw each and every one of us to that point where we would come to the end of ourselves and look and ask the tough question, am I in him? For those that aren't, Father, I pray that in your spirit you would cause them to move and they would be saved. Father, for those of us that are saved, I pray that we would go beyond that. Not just am I I in him, but am I holding anything back? Is there anything in my life that has become a God? A false God, a damning God, a God that threatens to steal my attention, my affections, or your glory. Father, we know that worship is a great litmus test for that. That the things that we worship, so Father, in these moments to come, may we worship none but you. May the thoughts of what needs to come May may, may Sunday dinner, may Monday's emails, may the mowing of the yard, may that all be just pressed aside as we just sing as one to the only one that is worthy of our praise. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.